Peace and Black Power family, this is your host Raheem Shabazz and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast and today family, we have a special guest in the building and she has worked 25 years representing Black youth in the Washington DC area in the juvenile court. She has been pivotal in many cases in helping those who don't have a voice have a voice. So she advocates for the most vulnerable of society, those who are voiceless. And she's also a law professor. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Chris Henning. How are you doing, my sister? I am great. So happy to be here with you, Raheem. I know this interview has been a long time in the making. Um, I want to let everybody know that she is an author of a book that has been receiving rave reviews um, from the New York Post and several other uh, mainstream and prestigious press. I had the opportunity to read most of it. I didn't finish it yet because I'm I'm quite busy, but it it definitely was a fascinating book. And um, I want you to tell our audience a little bit about the book and tell us what was the inception for you to come out with this book. Yeah. So thank you uh, for elevating this conversation. So the book is called The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Mm -hmm. And it really is a collection of stories about many of the young people that I have represented over the last 25, 26 years, as well as um, a a number of other high profile stories that many of you have already heard about, like Tamir Rice, Mike Brown, um, and, and the like. But I tell different parts of those stories to really highlight the ways in which Black children are not allowed to be children at all. The ways in which um, we know that adolescents, that teenagers all across the world, not just in the United States, but all across the world are impulsive. They're reactive. They're creative. They're boundary testers, right? Um, Risk takers, right? And in fact, that's what makes us successful. The willingness and the ability to try things new, the courage, the creativity to try things new um, is what makes us succeed as adults. But it also means that sometimes our behaviors meet the elements of a criminal offense. Now, the book is all about how when you're a Black child, you are criminalized for those normal adolescent risk-taking and impulsive behaviors. But if you're a white child, you are allowed to experiment um, in every way possible. You're allowed what we call the privilege of being a kid. Um, And so I wrote this book because, as you said, I've been representing kids um, in the nation's capital for 25 years. And um, in that entire time, I have only represented four white children. That's it. 
that you, everybody should be shocked by that number, Raheem. Four white kids. That's it. Every other child that I've represented has been an African-American child. Um, and so folks who are not from D.C. might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Are there no white kids in D.C.? Of course there are. You know, they might be thinking, well, do white kids engage in criminal behavior? Of course they are. We just talked about all of the impulsivity and risk taking. You know, they experiment with drugs and alcohol and sex and um, <clears throat> they get into fights and they do all the, you know, the silly and, uh, you know, you know, foolish things that kids do. And we never see them in court. OK. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I wanted to just chime in. Right. Because in your book and, it, and this goes inside with what you were saying, you know, America um, has this irrational and manufactured fear for, for black youth, particularly. And we see that time and time again. Um, there's a, always a different standard. We've seen that in the, um, recent basketball game with the female, uh, LSU. Right. Happened. Um, they both did the same hand gesture and one was considered, um, offensive. Um, she was called all type of name while the, uh, white player, was considered hip and with swag. Right. Uh, we see this time and time with our young black males. Was there ever a time that this fear didn't exist or this is something that has been in the nature of other individuals? Yes, it it is something. It, the answer is there was no, there was never a time when this did not exist, right? Uh -huh. That our very country was founded on this... Um, uh, really, the, the the idea that black children were less than, and in fact, less than human. Okay, oh. right. The very founding of our country was rooted in the enslavement of black people, including black children, who were treated like property. The only way to justify that dehumanization is to come up with uh, a narrative that paints black children as, you know, and all black people as lazy, you know, dangerous, um, threatening imbeciles, right? That who cannot survive unless the, the master is guiding and directing them. Fast forward, right? Um, to the, the, you know, civil rights era. Um, and the, the little shoot, you don't have to go that far. Fast forward to the lynching era, right? Where yeah. children like Emmett Till, 14 years old is, you know, is, is lynched, if you will, killed, um, because he allegedly, um, whistled at a white woman, which has now been recanted. Again, you can only justify the absolute degradation and dehumanization of black children by creating a false narrative that they are a threat to white women. Right. Um, and then fast forward to the 1990s and you see the language about the super predator, you know, coming, uh, uh, you know, to rape, maim and kill all of America by the year 2000. We know good and well that did not happen. But all of these very intentional narratives have been put forth to justify the differential and inhumane treatment of black children. And it was only after these explicit narratives, right? These very clear, um, you know, 
articulated narratives um, are no longer politically correct. You can't go around saying, you know, even though you still hear it, but but that Black children are brutes and thugs. Instead, now it's implicit, right? So it's that implicit narrative where, you know, you see uh, a Tamir Rice in a park with a play gun. You assume automatically he must be dangerous. You see yeah. kids laughing in a group. You assume Black kids laughing. You assume they must be um, dangerous. That's how implicit bias works after the implicit, explicit, excuse me, um, narratives of have gone away. Now we talk about implicit bias. Um, this has been going on a long time. America has a history of wrongfully convicting black youth, whether we look at the uh, Scottsboro case, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Emmett Till, and we also had the Central Park Five who right. have been uh, exonerated for crimes that they have been accused of, right? So I wanted to ask you, what steps can we take as Black America, right, to circumvent situations like mm -hmm. this from happening? Well, first and foremost, we got to check ourselves because this discussion about implicit racial bias happens with inside our community as well. Right. And so that we hear narratives um, on the like right now, you know, people are talking about, hey, crime is on the rise again. People are worried about gun violence and people readily black people even readily buy into the media narrative oh. that black children, again, are running amok. That's the narrative again. You know, just like the 80s and 90s are running amok when in reality, the data shows we got to pay attention to the data. Right. Um, and that the data shows that still crime is, you know, significantly lower a than it was back in the 80s and the 90s. And more important, that very few children of any race and any crime are involved in the types of criminal behavior that we are most afraid of, rape, murder, homicides, you know. And so those are the things that make the news. Those are the things that understandably have us all afraid. But we have to be careful not to blame or punish or isolate the entire Black adolescent population That's and right for the sins of the one or two, right? So that's number one, right? Number two is like when you hear these narratives, you hear a news story about even a serious violent offense, carjacking or a shooting, you have to force yourself to woe, stop, think, and recognize that there's always multiple sides to a story uh -huh. and that you got to get the rest of the information or not, right? But like, accept that you don't know it all, right? And then the third thing I think we as a Black community need to do internally before we talk about externally, but the third thing we need to do internally is recognize that Black children are not beyond redemption, even when they engage in the most serious offenses, that they are not beyond redemption. We have to ask the hard questions. What are the root causes of the behavior and what can we as a society do to help those kids? And so that's part of that transitions into what can we as a Black community do about, um, about, the, uh, about the disparate treatment of mm -hmm. black kids and the false convictions is that one, we need to be out front speaking, um, testifying before our that's right. Our local lawmakers about we don't need to transfer children to adult court. Do not buy in 
to the hype that somehow putting you know a 15 year old under the jail because they engaged in some even you know some impulsive behavior um some peer driven behavior that even led to the most horrendous outcome even that child is not beyond redemption with the right services and the right intervention so we as a community need to be advocating for the right things right we need to be advocating for services for young people we need to be advocating raheem for a public health approach to school safety and to public safety. And that's all about having a continuum of mental health providers in our school systems, in our communities. It means vocational support. It means um, uh, restorative justice. It means smaller class sizes. It means social, emotional learning and conflict resolution. And even in schools where there is serious of, of violence in that school, we need violence interrupters, incredible messengers um, who look like the children who are most impacted to go into those schools and help mediate um, and, and bridge relationships that have been broken. That's what we need to be advocating for. We need all of the above. Everything that you just said, we need that and we need that expeditiously. Right. right? I just want to acknowledge someone, um, Nikki the God. She left a comment and she says peace. And she's an individual that been rocking with us from day one. Um, and speaking of her, she posted a tweet the other day, right? Because there's a new movie. I'm not sure if you in tune with pop culture, but um, about Freaknik. You, you know oh, about- I do know what Freaknik is, but I didn't know there was a movie about Freaknik. Oh, yeah. And it's coming out on Hulu, right? Okay. And a lot of people are saying that what they're going to do is they're going to use this movie to uh, criminalize black men and oh, show wow. that these are the brute, overly sexist, sexualized, sexualized yep. men. And, um, you know, it's going to be, and you know how they had surviving R. Kelly. They're going to be having surviving Freaknik wow. when this was a period in time where these was young children and a lot of them, um, was under the age of 25. And we know that the front lobe of your brain is not really developed until you're in your mid twenties. And they make, like you was talking earlier, um, impulsive decisions. Right. And um, we don't see this type of criminalization or um, media hype when white people do it. Right. So what do you have to say about the media criminalization of black youth? Yeah, you know, when I have conversations with folks in the media, I do, you know, done had opportunity to do some trainings. It's some of the same stuff about checking yourself and and like making sure that that the media is doing a fair and accurate job of nuanced data collection of of understanding. First of all, I tell every, you know, um, crime beat reporter, you've got to get training in adolescent development, right? So all the things you just said about the adolescent brain and the not being fully de- developed, all of that, that's got to be part of the training, right? Um, they also have to understand the, 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 the realities that um, very few children are committing the types of crimes that we're talking about. They haven't all run amok. We also have to be careful about, this is what I talk to people about, understanding how differently 
how differently Kyle Rittenhouse was that story was told than the stories of very similar black children, right? I mean, y'all think about Kyle Rittenhouse. His behavior was the epitome of everything we just talked about, about adolescent development. He's the 17-year-old kid who um, crosses state lines, right? Walking through the street with an assault rifle, you know, strapped across his body in plain view. In his 17-year-old brain, he's convinced right? That he can somehow has the capacity and the skills to protect businesses that somehow need to be protected in this Black Lives Matter protest. He is impulsive, reactive. He's doing what his peers are doing because why? His friends called him over, gave him the gun, right? You know, he's not thinking ahead to the long-term consequences. He's not weighing uh, or assessing the risk. None of that, right? He's being a teenager, right? You know why, um, right? Because he um, got complexion for protection. Exactly. Go ahead now. Exactly. But, you know, and this is exactly what happens, right? You know, he's out there um, and, you know, all of a sudden things get out of control. Things go awry. He ends up taking the lives of two people and severely injuring another. Then he, his mother and his defense attorney, rightfully so, wanted the whole world to see him as an adolescent who got in over his head, period. Right now. Um, retell that story in blackface, and that's a whole different outcome. Whole different story. A whole different story. One, Absolutely. Of things, one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to treat you like a child, but they're going to punish you like an adult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not give you due process, not give you an opportunity to be heard, you know, all that. And I think I tell people like, look, even think about like Kyle Rittenhouse's story in blackface means imagine that a black kid, you know, calls his friend and says, hey, man, um, I'm out here at a park and I'm afraid something might go down. Can you please just come? So I have some numbers. Right. So I have some backup. You know, the friend comes out, you know, somebody passes him a gun just for safekeeping. Right. And again, things go awry. Somebody, you know, they end up taking a life. Right. Nobody accepts that this could have been an adolescent impulsive reaction, a fear reaction. Nobody gives them the benefit of the of the adolescent development research. None of that. In fact, quite to the contrary, they're quick to label that kid, the two kids who are out at the park as gang members. And if you all look, if you Google and look at some of the pictures of Kyle Rittenhouse walking down the street, you see his friend. They're dressed just alike. You know what I mean? Look in fatigue. They look just like gang members. Nobody ever talked about them as being a gang. None of that. And so our whole analysis is just different. Right. And that speaks to everybody. Media needs to pay attention. All of us need to pay attention. How quickly we buy into the labeling and the harms and the consequences that come with labeling. Right. You know, white kids dress alike, hang out with friends and they never get called gang members. You know, so. You know, there's a video. I don't know if you follow me on, on uh, Instagram, but I posted a video yesterday of this white teacher and she was really. Um, I don't I, I don't know what triggered her. Right. But mm-hmm. her, her manner and behavior was very unprofessional. Uh, she asked what she asked the students, you know, what did he do that's different and why is he doing that? And. One of the kids said, told her, um, you, you're doing that because he's black, right? And you're racist. That's what the student said, right? Mm-hmm. Now, at most, he was mouthing off and, you know, kids are known to tell the truth for what they see. And this is how this young man felt. And her reaction to him when she got in his face and was yelling and screaming wow. at him, belittling him and bullying him and 
towering over him. Right. Um, many people call for her firing and say mm -hmm. this this was you know apparently wrong. Me, I always tell people that we're the only race of people that send our children to the to their open enemy and people mm -hmm. who don't have their best interests at heart mm -hmm. and people who you know primarily doesn't look like them. You know, um, and I was surprised, right? Because I, I, I would hope to believe that most people follow me, follow me because they, they know um, the type of person I am, you know, and my core belief and me advocating for kids. But I was surprised more than anything of some of the response I was getting. And then from people that I know, you know, some of them in the entertainment industry, some of them I know personally. And, you know, the comments started with this generation of kids, you know, they need mm -hmm. to learn to respect the adults. And um, these kids are out of control. And, you know, she was right. And I was like, wow. Right. Imagine when you was a kid. That's right. People advocated for you in that manner. You know, and it was just, you know, some people was like, well, there's probably more to this story. But the videos that we're seeing, you can say to yourself that regardless to what happened before record was pressed, this is Adele who's in a professional position. And if you don't know how to deal with children, this is not the occupation for you. And I know you as a, as a child advocate, right? You see that time and time again, especially in the school system and with the teachers that are backed by a powerful union. And then you have the police in school, right? And this is where the school to prison pipeline starts. What are your thoughts on policing in the school, primarily in the black American community. Yeah. So there are a lot of things to say. And let me just say with regard to, I haven't seen your, the, the video and I will definitely check that out, but that um, I, you know, one, as much sympathy as I have, and I do have sympathy for teachers who are not well-resourced, you know, have classrooms that are too big, you know, don't have behavioral tech, you know, and mental health supports inside the classroom. So I know how hard it is. That mm -hmm. said, it's, it's, it's really um, so critical um, to do that woe stop think and think about how you are modeling for not only that student, but for every other student. How do you resolve conflicts? How do you address, you know, misbehavior and, and, and discord? Um, they're watching you. They're watching you. And that, as you indicated, you know, that she's an adult with an adult brain and hopefully an adult capacity to regulate her emotions. And I'm saying that in a very technical and clinical way because adolescents are just the opposite. They don't have that, you know, um, very often, you know, notwithstanding, yes, as all your commenters said, kids, you know, technically know the difference between right and wrong. However, kids, especially kids with disabilities, kids who are experiencing trauma, kids who feel um, singled out and treated unfairly, um, <clears throat> really have diminished capacity to regulate those emotions, to articulate, you know, wisely, calmly, clearly how they're feeling. And so many of these kids um, respond in outbursts. If I understood you say you correctly, it was something saying that the, the kid was telling her that she was being racist or no? Yeah, he was saying, yeah, basically he was just telling her, you, you know, um, you, you you did what you did because that was a black student and ma'am, you're racist. 
And so here, yeah, it just went crazy, you know. And you know how they say a hit dog will holler. So yeah, exactly, exactly uh, what happened. I need to look at my time. Okay, we got good time, and I know at six o'clock you yeah. have to you have to boogie, you have to skate, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. We, we but, got a few more minutes. Yeah, um, your book. There was a chapter that was very compelling, um, and that stood out to me. Um, it was called The Dehumanization of Black Youth When Children Aren't Children Anymore. And earlier I spoke about how they would treat you like a children, a child, and punish you as an adult, right? Tell me a little bit about that chapter. Yeah, um, that chapter is all about how kids on the deep inside, right? The kids who um, do commit serious crimes are not given the benefit of the doubt, that there is a growing body of evidence, <clears throat> best practices is what we call them, for engaging with young people, even young people who have engaged in serious and repeat offenses, that there's a way to handle them with humanity. There's a way to do comprehensive wraparound interventions, what they call multi-systemic therapy, family functional therapy. That means there is concerted interventions in every sort of system that the kid interacts with, the school system, the home, the community, um, mental health, all of that somebody's intervening on behalf in favor of that kid to make yeah. those systems work better individually and together. But we don't do that for black kids. So I talk about how black kids are far more likely to be prosecuted as if they were an adult, like even a 15 year old. So think about Khalif Browder out of New York, 16 year old child, you know, prosecuted as an adult for, um, for a crime one, he didn't even commit and for which actually never came to trial because he was held in Rikers Island for three years. And ultimately, finally, and three years when the prosecutors knew, when the prosecutors knew that they had no um, government witness, no complaining witness, right? And oh. so um, so things like that, that's what that chapter is about. It's a chapter about solitary confinement. It's a chapter about, you know, how we put black kids, like, you, you know, for those folks who watch Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, right? And how um, Corey, you know, uh, Wise in that, in that one of the exonerated five was oh. held in, in solitary confinement for extended, you know, periods of his time. Khalif Browder, solitary confinement for extended uh, periods of that three years. In fact, the majority of the three years, you know, he was, you know, beaten and put in solitary confinement. So that's what that chapter is all about, right? Um, the dehumanization, even, I don't care, nobody is as bad as the worst thing they've ever done, right? Wow. Nobody, right? You can't, right, like, um, take a 15-year-old who is every bit a child, every bit of a child, put him in the adult system, put him in adult jail and think that all of a sudden, you know, he's going to be an adult. You're putting him to be prey to other inmates. You're putting him to be prey to sexual violence, physical violence by guards and by other, you know, um, people who are incarcerated. Um, there are so many, you know, working with young people who are 14 years old, who tried as adults, some of which later exonerated. How tragic is that? You stole somebody's childhood. Right. So I think that's that's a that's a huge, huge issue. Yeah. Now you talk about the dehumanization of black youth. Right. And you talked about how we as a community have to stand behind them. Um, the teachers at school, the community, the parents. Right. Um, in society, we have people from all walks of life. We have kids that are raising kids. 
typically their other siblings and they don't have the two parent household. They don't have the mother that's active in their life, right? But they do have a Christine, someone like you, who's going to advocate on their behalf. I want you to speak to parents that may have a troubled youth, that how important it is to have an advocate as yourself who can speak for them because a lot of people are not eloquent as you, you know, and that can go in there and speak that um, speak as an educated lawyer and advocate for these children to the parents that may have a child that's going through something, how important it is for them to reach out to somebody like you to advocate on their behalf and get the help that they need. It's very important. And there are States um, across the country, or I should say courthouses, um, across the country where um, there are officials who try to encourage parents to waive um, their right to counsel. And it's actually not even their right. It's the child's right. Right. But to, to urge their kids to waive their right to counsel, um, either because they're afraid of the the, the fees or the cost. Um, so so the, the thing is, there are access to free lawyers and free lawyers who care. OK, and I know there is a myth and it is true sometimes that when you get a lawyer who's court appointed or unpaid, they don't have the time or the resources. And to be quite frank, sometimes the commitment to represent you well. However, there are places where you can call where we can help you find a lawyer where you live um, who really cares. And so I, um, you know, at the the national Juvenile Defender Center, which is now called the Galt Center, um, G A U L T, the Galt Center, um, uh, can get you, help you find a lawyer for your child. If worst case scenario, look me up at the Georgetown. You can, I'm easy to find Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic. Um, Google me. You can email me. I can put you in touch. Um, if I don't know someone in your city, I can, you know, help find you. It is important to get a lawyer and to get a lawyer who cares um, uh, because our kids so often don't get the same kind of due process, right? The fair trial. They get railroaded into taking pleas. They get railroaded into, you know, confessing if you will, to the police without giving any context or any mitigation, right? That helps explain how it happened or why it happened. So you really have to have a lawyer and an advocate. Um, and also that we as advocates fight for alternatives to traditional prosecution. Everything and actually most things don't belong, belong in court, especially involving teenagers, right? We don't need courts, right? To, to teach a kid to stop talking back, you know, to adults, right? Like that situation at the um, at the school that you talked about, right? Um, so it's really, really important. Also, you know, if you want to talk about school police, you asked me a little bit about school police. It's like part of the, the problem with school police is that we then rely on policing for absolutely everything. So a kid who's having a traumatic um, episode at school, a kid who's having a mental health crisis at school, a kid who is disabled, um, has a speech and language disorder, autism, all of those things, kids who get sent to the nurse's office because they've got a stomachache, all of that becomes criminalized, right? As, as all of a sudden, instead of like calling mental health professionals for those interventions, we call the police, right? So police in schools means more arrest of police in schools. And let me just tell you back on school data, black girl, black girls are 3.6 times more likely right. to be arrested at school than a white girl. 
um, black boys are 2.4 times more likely to be arrested at school than a um, a, a white boy. And very often for behaviors that I guarantee you are never, ever referred to the police um, at a white school. Um, and, and, and you know what it is? It's like with the, uh, the black females, you know, <laughs> black female children, it's uh, willful defiance. That's right. When they ask you to do something, you don't do it fast enough. Or you know how some of our sisters, we can be sad. They can be sassy with the mouth. Uh -huh. And um, children is going to be children. And that's not a criminal offense. That's right. And we see that happening time and time again. And that's where the school, the prison pipeline come involved when you have law enforcement involved in these particular areas. And we know, you know, the mass school shooting is not happening in predominantly black schools. And the um, the profile, not, this is not Raheem speaking, this is the FBI, the CIA, and every news outlet. Um, the suspect doesn't um, fit the profile of a young black male in the urban community. We know That's that for right. fact. Fact. Stand on that. All right, so I want you to do... Um, something for me, right? 25 years advocating for kids. And um, I, I know it all have came across your desk. Um, mm -hmm. The most grievous case, uh, cases that should have never been uh, yes. brought before the court um, case that went all the way to litigation. Yes. And you know, um, you advocated and a, and a child probably was allowed to go home to their family. Um, it's just so many cases that we hear about. And I know you're familiar yes. with the, um, what it was, cast for, 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 for students, the, um, the, the judge in Pennsylvania. Oh, oh, kids for cash. Yes. Kids for cash. Kids That's for right. cash. Right. Like that. And, and I don't even think he went to jail. I think he got fined or something like Right. They got a lot of fines. I do think they finally went to jail, though. This is very recent. So, like, so, so this, the, the kids for cash is an old story. Like, I want to say 2015, but they've been, yeah. the, fortunately, there's been so much outrage. I know they got a huge fine. And then I think they might have gone in very, very recently. Like, I, in the last so. year. I remember the fine. And then I remember, um, like, like most recently, like within the last two years, it resurfaced again. It resurfaced news. again. And yeah. I think they, yeah, they did, they did find them. But I, what I want you to do, you know, with all the years of your experience, could you just, I, I know um, due to privacy laws, you can't say names or nothing like that. So we're not asking you that. But if you could give us a case scenario where you advocated for a child and probably against all odds, um, you were successful in your endeavors and, and the child came out right on the other side and he was able to probably join his family or something like that. Yes. I'm happy to tell. I actually have two, but I'll at least tell one of them. And well, I'm going to ask you all. We got time. Right. Look, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you all, listen, to, to like read the book, The Rage of Innocence, How America criminalizes black youth. And I'm going to tell you, the first thing I'm going to tell you is the opening story of the book, because that is one of the main things that, write me, that made me write this book. And it was a story about a client that I represent. I call him Eric in the book. At the time, I, I mean, Eric, you remember this? So yeah. Eric, a 13-year-old boy who um, uh, one Saturday night was watching a movie. Someone in the movie had a Molotov cocktail. In his 13-year-old brain, he thinks, ooh, this is cool. Let me see if I can make something that looks 
like this. He does not research it, doesn't ask anybody what's in the Molotov cocktail. He's just being a kid. He goes into his kitchen, he grabs a glass bottle, and he begins to pour in whatever liquid he can find, bleach, pine slaw, you know, whatever, water. He then um, uh, tapes up the bottle so that it looks like a Molotov cocktail. But here's my favorite part of the story. He also takes a piece of toilet paper, right? And runs the toilet paper from the inside of the bottle to the outside, closes the cap. Now, all of us listening know that toilet paper is going to burn out before it even gets to the, you know, to the cap, right? But he's just, you know, he's just playing with a toy. It's Saturday night. He plays with it. He gets tired of it. He puts the the, the, the bottle in his um, book bag and forgets all about it. Monday morning comes and his, uh, and the only reason he put it in his book bag is because his mother had white carpet. He, um, Monday morning comes, his mother drives him to school. Um, Eric gets out. He walks into school, puts his book bag through the metal detector. A school resource officer sees the bottle and says, what is that? Eric immediately says, oh, that is nothing. You could throw it away. Wasn't even trying to keep it. Wasn't even trying to think about it, right? Eric goes on to class and little does he know, this is the beginning of a nine month ordeal in our local juvenile court. This child, they, the, the school calls the police department, the um, fire department. They drag this kid out of his class, arrest him in front of uh, you know classmates and teachers. Um, he's held in, in detention overnight and brought to court the next day and charged with both possession of a Molotov cocktail and arson. I've already told you the liquids inside are bleach and pine salt. They're not catching on fire. And he told them, I am not trying to blow up the school. When he got arrested. He was like, it was just a toy. Nobody believed him. Nobody gave him the benefit of the doubt. So he ends up in court for nine months before we are able to get him out. Here's the deal though. And this is what everybody needs to hear. I was giving a talk. I was in a conference in New Haven in Connecticut sometime after that. I tell this story, this very story about Eric um, at that conference, a woman comes up to me and she says, "My." it was a white woman. She says, my son did the exact same thing. And I say to her, what happened? You know what she tells me? That that kid got placed in advanced science classes. So he gets rewarded for bringing this Molotov cocktail looking thing to, to school. Whereas my client, my client gets arrested. He gets not only he gets arrested, prosecuted, um, expelled from school, um, uh, all the things. Right. We had to fight. Right. We were the lawyers in his delinquency case. We fought. We called in expert witnesses to show that it would never be flammable. We had pretrial hearings. We filed motions to dismiss the case. Um, we also got another lawyer to advocate for him against the school suspension, uh, school expulsion. They got him back in school. But even when they got him back in school, they kicked him out of all of his extracurricular activities. You oh, know, wow. drama class. He was huge into arts and advocacy. It just was tragic. But he um, after nine months, we did convince convince the, the, the court to throw the case out oh. in what they call in the interest of justice, because we kept making this fairness and equity arguments, you know, um, that even if it had been flammable, which it wasn't right, um, that it just made no sense that he was not trying to blow up the school. So we finally got the case dismissed. You know, I've you know been in touch with him since you can read the end of the book and find out what happens to him. But he's doing well, okay. um, doing very well. Yeah, so. that 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 was when I read that, I was like, wow. And, you know, there's instances where individuals commit remotely the same exact crime, go in front of the same judge, right? 
And the person that might be white might have a longer and extensive criminal background and they get to go home and the other person gets sentenced to a determined amount of time in jail. And you can't, you can't help but say, you know, this is racist and this is racism at its finest. That's right. So listen, I know I don't have too much time left with you. I definitely appreciate you for, um, coming here and let's not let this be your uh, first and your last time um, before you give out your social media handle and allow people to um, be able to connect with you on social media. um, Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Or is there anything that you want to say in your last closing words? Yeah. I want to make sure people really understand the, the, the trauma associated with this over-policing and hyper-surveillance of Black people, uh, of Black children in particular, that there is now research, right? Like, you know, the empirical researchers have looked at the psychological trauma that comes from the over-policing of young people. So kids who live in heavily surveilled neighborhoods, heavily policed neighborhoods, heavily policed schools, and who are constantly or even frequently under, you know, stop and frisk by the police, Uh um, report high rates of um, fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness. They become always on guard, right? Always hypervigilant, right? Always Mm -hmm. on guard, distrusting police officers. And a lot of that distrust, you think about that little boy that you talked about, that distrust of police carries over to other adult figures in their life, like teachers, right? Like counselors, you begin to lose faith when you as a black child are constantly under target, constantly being labeled as criminal, um, isolated and excluded and, and arrested. That's really a traumatic experience. And, you know, the trauma occurs not just from being the direct target, but also from witnessing it right in your community, hearing about it from friends and family, or even watching the death of George Floyd, you know, uh, Tamir Rice and Mike Brown on television. All of that is having a horrendous impact on our black children. Right. Um, And so when we think about the cost associated with police in schools or over policing, um, police being parked in, you know, in all of the parks and black neighborhoods um, so that the black kids don't feel like there's a safe place to go and to be kids. Right. All of that has a real psychological cost on our kids. And it actually does nothing to improve, you know, public safety. So that's one of the things I really like to leave with folks is this is this idea. We've got to learn how to let kids be kids. Right. Right. Creating safe space. I'm not saying don't redirect them. I'm not saying give them guidance, but we don't need police officers to do that. You need to do we need to demand, you know, resources or, you know, a reallocation of resources. Right. So we have more opportunities for play, recreation, leisure, study, jobs, you know, fun for kids, um, mentors, all those things that make kids grow up well, right? Instead of over-policing. We are really hurting our kids and ourselves um, with what we what we keep doing and that we know is wrong. I'm so glad you said what you said and you put it in the manner that you did because a lot of people will believe Oh, you know, it's just not policing. It's just the type of police. We don't need white police in our community. You know, if we have more black police. No, we don't need police, period. You know, whether they're black or they're white, you know, because we've seen what happened in uh, Tennessee. That's where right. uh, 
Ty, what is it, Tyree Nichols? Oh yeah, with Tyree Nichols. There's another story out of out of yes, out of Tennessee too, Rutherford County in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where judge was sending eight year old kids, you know, to jail for behavior that didn't even constitute a crime on the books. Y'all, there are stories after stories after stories. I'm telling and, you, and what's happening with this judge? Well, so that judge got you know sort of pro publica. One of the media outlets really blew that story up, um, and then you know she's gotten you know reprimanded, very similar to the kids for cash, you know. Scenario. Reprimanded and probably was able to retire with a full pension. Probably, right? Right? Exactly. 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 Yeah. Sending eight-year-old children, right? Or having them arrested, you know, ha- calling the police, you know, having them arrested for, for behaviors that did not even constitute a crime on the books. Wow. Just crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Well, I'll tell you one thing, family. Um, it is a blessing to have a sister such as herself that is advocating for our kids, and we definitely need more advocates for our kids. Um, I appreciate you coming here. And in closing, can you give individuals your social media and how they can get in contact with you? Absolutely. So um, you can usually find me at Prof Henning. No, sorry. At Prof Chris Henning on most social media accounts. So at Prof Chris Henning. Um, now, when you say prop, that's P-R-O-F, right? Prop. That's right. P- that's right. P-R-O-F-K-R-I-S Henning, H-E-N-N-I-N-G, all run together, at Prof Chris uh-huh. Henning. So you can find me there. You can also, I'm really easy to find if you just do a search for me, you know, Kristen Henning, Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic. I pop up all over the place. You can hit me up through my email. You can um, also, I have a, my, my, uh, have a website just for my book, which has all my uh, speaking, public speaking contact information, rageofinnocence.com. All right. Rageofinnocence.com. And you also, um, I was looking at your calendar. You are very, very busy. Yes. I'm, I'm getting ready to release a book. I'm like, I hope my calendar look like this. <laughs> so you will. You tell us some of the places that um, you're going to be uh, visiting in the next coming uh, week. Because I oh, see like the whole April is like almost. Yeah. I try to figure out what's 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 public. Um, I think some, some of them is at Harvard or, or university. Yeah, I just got back from Harvard. So a lot of the so a lot of them are, are public. I just did a, you know, a, yeah, public libraries. You know, the best way to find me is like rageofinnocence.com or or really, um, hmm, you know, if you Google, I, I pop up where I'm coming, where I'm going to be. Okay. It's hard for me to even just Google. figure out. <laughs> she yeah. said, oh, you know what? For those in LA, I mean, I know you're you're in Atlanta. I'm in DC, <clears throat> but I'm going out to LA this next weekend, next, next Saturday weekend. for okay. a book event um, all day. So it's called the LA Times Book Festival. I will be out there. That's public. Um, and I'll be out, you know, on a booth um, and uh, have a little speaking engagement out there. So LA is a good place. You might find me next. Um, Did you make it to the uh, New York Times bestseller list? I, I did not, but I what guess what though? I did make it to the front page of the New York Times book review. Okay, that's what I see. And they that's got the LA Times uh, book. Yes, review. there's an LA Times article, Washington Post article. So yeah. there's out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, see you doing your thing. I see you doing your thing. And, 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 and it just warms my heart, right? Because this is about children. That's right. Um, black children at that. Black children. You know that's what I mean? And you know me, I'm unapologetically black. That's right. So That's I, right. I love it, man, because we don't have too many individuals such as yourself. And I know you're probably mentoring other people 
You know, we got to start passing the time to other individuals. That's right. That's right. Do this advocacy work because it's it's enough for everybody to go around. The way they doing us out here, we got to have these advocates. So once again, uh, Christine, I thank you. And like I said, you know, this is your first time. Let's don't make it your last time. I, I welcome you back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Raheem Shabazz. And if you're just joining us, you better press rewind and tune into this one right here. This is one for the history books. Peace and Black Power. All right. Peace and blessings, too. Y'all take care.